At a time of institutional turmoil, a savior appeared. At a time of worldwide war and conflict came one who was a prince of peace. At a time of the collapse of government came one of whose increase of peace and government there would be no end. And so, of course, when a Savior appears, you remember his birth. And throughout the world, traditions arose to remember the birth of the Divine Son. And some of those traditions have been preserved even today. Like this one that I'm going to read you, that we found carved on stones in several places, including a place called Priene in the eastern Mediterranean. It's called the Priene Calendar Inscription. It's dated to the 9th year before the common era, before the birth of Christ, and it reads this way. Providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set everything in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. He, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. The birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good news for the world that came by reason of him. Does that sound vaguely familiar? Have you led Mark manuscript study? <laughs> what is the beginning of the gospel? Mark is writing a few decades later, someone got to that phrase first. Augustus, the divine son, adopted son of Julius Caesar, raised to divine status. Augustus, savior, soter in Greek, the same word we use for Jesus, celebrated in the ninth century before the common era as the one who would end all war and bring lasting peace. And when that was written, more precisely when it was engraved on those stones, it seemed possible. It even seemed plausible because Augustus was still reigning. He had celebrated his decennial, his 10 years of reign. For a Roman emperor, that's a long time to last that long. He lasted for 30 more years. He did indeed bring a kind of order to a, a republic-turned-empire under his leadership that had fallen into disorder. It seemed that Caesar had actually brought peace. The people who wrote that little inscription, might have, might have had political ideas in mind. If you got in Caesar's favor enough, you didn't have to pay that tax that uh, Joseph and Mary had to travel to pay. So maybe by erecting that inscription, they hoped that their town would be put, placed under the use italicum, as it was called, and spared the tax. But even if there was a little bit of a political motivation, it could well have been sincere. But what was ahead were events that would reveal it was all, of course, a lie. Augustus was not divine, but his successors would ever more aggressively proclaim and claim their divinity. 
Augustus did not bring peace. In fact, his successors would extend the borders of the empire in endless wars. Augustus was relatively sane. Nero and Commodus, his successors in the first and second century, were not. And that is why today the Priene calendar inscription is an artifact. It's a piece of antiquarian history interesting only to people who studied classics in college. And the gospel, according to Luke, is the living word of God. 2,000 years later, you never probably ever heard of that inscription. You may have vaguely heard of Augustus Caesar. And the life of the one Jesus is the reason we are in this room with that wall of saints and witnesses behind us, stretching back far beyond 75 years of university to 2,000 years of the good news that just began in the chapters in Luke that we are spending our time in this week. And this puts us in the place of Theophilus. Oh, most excellent Theophilus, says Luke. Since you have begun to learn, I thought I ought to check it out and tell you how it really happened. We don't know much about Theophilus, though we know he reads Greek. And because he can read Luke, we know he can read good Greek, which is not how you describe much of the rest of the Bible. This is the other thing you discover when you become a classicist, second year. You get enough Greek that you can open up your Bible and you open it, say, to the Gospel of Mark. And you're all excited. I'm reading the Word of God in the original language that will reveal untold truths that I've never accessed in English, even though, actually, it's all pretty good in English. But uh, you read the Greek, you kind of hope you'll get some extra special holiness. It totally does not work out. Uh, But you open up to the Gospel of Mark, and it's horrifying how bad Mark's Greek is. He's clearly a late adopter of the language. But Luke, on the other hand, Luke writes good Greek, really good Greek, literary Greek, elevated Greek. And he addresses it perhaps to his patron, perhaps to a fictive person, but he addresses him most excellent. An honorific that is only used elsewhere in the New Testament for officials and high people in high position in Roman government. Most excellent Festus. Most excellent Theophilus. And So this means Theophilus knows very well Augustus' story. He knows very well the empire's story. Indeed, he has probably benefited profoundly from that story and participated as a key player in that story. And yet the story Luke tells Theophilus has a completely different center and a completely different narrative from anything he has encountered before. A story populated and peopled by shepherds, old people, like really old, like in their 80s, that's, apparent, that's really old. <laughs> People have been married for only seven years, then lived as a widow for 80, until 84 years old. It's Anna, the last character of Luke's prologue. This is not Theophilus' world, world of Jewish teenagers and pastorals out on the hillsides. This is not his natural story, but their world is going to become his world. And their story is going to become his story. When I arrived at Cornell University, I was um, kind of a Theophilus, I think. Theophilus means God lover. And I did love God. I'd come to faith in high school through the charismatic renewal in the Methodist and Catholic churches. I I loved God. I also was really good at faking speaking in tongues, but that's for another time. (laughs) In the midst of all that kind of teenage craziness, I had found something real 
and I came to college looking for more of something real, but in many ways, for all that I am sure I came across as very confident and competent, I was in many ways a baby Christian. And I had two university staff workers on my campus, Mark Baker and Bob Hunter. And Bob Hunter. And Bob Hunter. Mark Baker had spent much of his life as a missionary in Honduras. He started handing me books, books by people I'd never heard of, like Eugene Peterson, whoever that was. Uh, apparently he wrote the Bible later, but anyway. Uh, a French thinker, activist, and philosopher named Jacques Ellul, thick books. Mark opened up my world, my mental world, and then Bob. Bob was a black Baptist American liberation theologian who somehow was willing to just hang out with these Cornell students who had no idea who he was or what we had or who we were and teach us. And I will never forget, I can picture where I was in that hall of Cornell the night that Bob spoke and taught on Isaiah 58. That incredible chapter in Isaiah where God says, I hate, I despise your worship if you do not do justice. And I had no idea that was in the Bible. And I was a charismatic, like we were all about worship. And here's God saying, actually your worship stinks, unless you do justice. And I discovered a side of God and a reality of God that just had not been part of my little sheltered world. And I also picked up a little bit of black gospel on the piano. And precisely at the moment when for so many people they go off to university, little Theophiluses, and the dominant story of our world becomes plausible to them and becomes their dominant story and overwhelms that little vestigial faith that they had. For me, at that moment, in that place, with those university staff, another story became my story. I became captivated with this different story, and the rest of my life is about trying to make that story available, attractive, and plausible to as many people as I can. What is that story? My latest attempt to tell it is with a chart, a two-by-two two chart. I've, disco I've discovered a great fondness for two-by-twos, so I got one for you. Uh, it's in my book, Strong and Weak, and there's a lot more about it. I'm going to do it quickly. But it puts authority on one axis and vulnerability on another because actually I think flourishing for human beings made in the image of God is authority and vulnerability together, up and to the right. High authority, high vulnerability is what we are made for. <laughs> that story, Jasmine, that you shared was of incredible vulnerability. All that money to raise, not knowing how. I do not see Jasmine. She may have moved somewhere over there. <laughs> there you are. You know, often the musicians just kind of leave the house when they're done with their part, so I'm just grateful you're still here. That story was so powerful because it's a story of, of vulnerability, right? But it's also a story of authority, of you being granted authority by your supervisor, by your coach, by your own prayers to reach out to people, to offer them the opportunity to give. And in the end, the story you told us was an up and to the right story of incredibly high vulnerability, yes, but high authority too. And if I asked anybody to come up and give their testimony tonight, they would give a testimony that would somehow talk about a time when they were very vulnerable, but also found great capacity for action, which is what authority is. That's flourishing. At the very other corner of the chart is the opposite, low authority, low vulnerability, and that's safety. And that's where we're all meant to begin. If 
it were the way it was meant to be, every human life would begin the way every parent wishes it can be. When we are little babies, our parents do everything they can to reduce our vulnerability and to minimize our authority. <laughs> they wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Which means you wrap that baby. I got really good at wrapping my son in swaddling clothes because my son actually loved to be that tightly held. And in that place of not even being able to move his little hands, he was totally safe and totally known and totally prepared for everything that's to come, which of course is that if you're a good parent, you take the swat on clothes off after a few weeks. <laughs> we waited till he was seven, and then we uh, <laughs> had a special unwrapping. <laughs> and that child who you walked with to kindergarten, for first grade, you let them walk by themselves. And that child that you, let, uh, that you walked with to the store to do the daily grocery shopping, you let go to the store by themselves. And that second child named Amy, who's 16, on Saturday I take to the Pennsylvania Department of Motor Vehicles and let her try to acquire the authority of a driver's license, which will create great vulnerability for her father. <laughs> because the path of human life is meant to be from safety to flourishing up and to the right, greater and greater authority, greater and greater vulnerability. It's the path from a garden to a city. It's the path of human culture. It's what we were meant to be. However, there are two other corners. There's vulnerability without authority. What does that look like? Well, many words we could use for it, I suppose, but let's call it suffering, and it's in its most acute forms, poverty. The essence of poverty, I've come to believe, is not primarily about a lack of money, it's that you have maximal vulnerability and minimal authority. Wow. You are exposed to all the vulnerability that come with being human that we can't get rid of. It's our human reality. It's the reality of living in this world. But you have no capacity to act, deprived of capacity to act. And probably the majority of our neighbors on this planet live in that corner their whole lives. And parents who would love to keep their children safe cannot keep them safe, even when they just walk out of the house to use the latrine down the alleyway. And the parents have to realize, I can't even protect my child. That's vulnerability without authority. But then there's the other option, the most seductive corner, the corner we've all pursued in one way or another, I think, at some point. And it is up and to the left. And it is authority without vulnerability, high authority, low vulnerability. And the word that comes to mind for that, to me, is something I'm looking for with my remote here, control. Control is the dream of being able to act without risk. And we all want that. The problem is, you can't have it. Yeah, you can have it with a little mechanical system like a clock. Maybe you can have it for a couple hundred thousand miles with a car. Keep it running, keep it maintained. It'll do pretty much what you tell it to do. You can't have it with people. <laughs> you can't have it with social systems. You can't have it with your small group. <laughs> and you can't have it with God and with God's creation because God did not make a machine. And God is not a mechanic. God is a lover. God is a creator. And the world he made does not allow for control, which actually means 
we should get rid of that word and put the true words for authority without vulnerability, which are the biblical words. Click back, yeah, the biblical words, idolatry and injustice. All right, because what every idol promises is authority without vulnerability. You shall be like God, you shall not surely die. You shall be like God, all the authority you want, you shall not surely die. None of that vulnerability you fear. And what injustice is, is a social system in which some people have authority without vulnerability. But that is always at the expense of other people having vulnerability without authority. So you know you have found an unjust system when you see some people who seem to float free of this law of human vulnerability. They seem to be able to just live and do as they please with no consequences, no risk. But you also discover in every system like that that usually a larger number of people are, just, are deprived of the proper authority that belongs to them as image bearers of God, are held in poverty because there is, in fact, you could call it a kind, I can illustrate it with an arrow going the other direction, call it a kind of law of conservation of vulnerability in the cosmos. A law of conservation of vulnerability. You can't get rid of vulnerability, just like, you know, law of conservation of momentum, energy, right? You can't get rid of these things, you can only change them. You can't get rid of vulnerability, you can only shift it onto someone else. For you to live up and to the left, someone else has to live down and to the right. For you to have a simulation, a simulacrum of control, someone must have their dignity stripped from them because, by the way, the only thing that keeps this system in place is something called violence. <laughs> only with violence can you keep this system working, this counter-arrow, this false axis on which we all now live. And that violence flows from those who seek control to those who are in that situation vulnerable. Whether it's the addict whose addiction begins to fail him and so he begins to commit violence against even those he's most responsible for protecting. Whether it's the community that seeks unjust wealth that enslaves individuals to provide them the labor to acquire that wealth. It always requires violence. It's sustained by violence. And then it could be that there is a kind of reciprocal violence from those caught in suffering and poverty, and then people say, well, that's a very violent neighborhood. Huh. That's a very, there's a lot of black on black crime. There's 400 years of violence against that community, and you want to talk to me about black on black crime? in cities that were created by violently redlining, so that's the only place you could live. So yes, there is violence all through that system. Yes, there is. But it started with the quest for idolatry. An empire. Empire tells us that the contradictions of this story the tragedy of this story has been resolved. It's actually worked out just fine. A prince of peace has arrived, a divine son, who has put everything in order. Augustus did that by murdering several of his in-laws, murdering several senators, ordering the assassination of countless others. It was all sustained by violence, but it provided a kind of peace, the Pax Augustana. 
An empire tells you that there has been a resolution of the contradiction of the human story, the story that was meant to lead to flourishing and is now full of violence. Empire tells you, actually, we've worked out a way to have peace. But it's a premature resolution. And then empire consolidates that and tries to spread it around the world. This is not the story Luke tells. Some scholars have looked at the Praney calendar inscription and said, look, the language of Savior and Divine Son and beginning of the good news, that was all present in the air in the ancient Near East and the Greco-Roman world, you know, so the early Christians just picked it up and applied it to Jesus, who wasn't really Prince of Peace or God or anything. You know, they say, well, that language is already existing, so the fact that Mark uses it means it's just as untrue of Jesus as of, as of Octavian Gaius Octavius who became Augustus. <laughs> they completely ignore the fact that the story Luke tells does not follow the pattern of all these other imperial stories. In fact, it absolutely upends them in every possible way. This story has no premature resolution of conflict in the way that the Praeni calendar inscription does. Indeed, this story has Simeon prophesying to Mary, yes, your child will be for the rising and the falling of many in Israel, and a sword shall pierce your heart also. And in that is encapsulated and prophesied the destiny of that child to go to the very heart of idolatry and injustice, which is the most vile, shameful instrument of torture ever devised, the cross, and bear on that cross all the contradictions of the human story, all the dissonance that even to this day we feel. Luke says that is going to be the direction of the story. It's not a cover-up. It's not a concealing. It's not a premature resolution. It is actually a journey to the heart of the brokenness of that story to bring redemption in it. And who are these people? This is not about angelic visits to people like Gaius Octavius, uh, scion of the Octavians and adopted son of Julius Caesar. No, the angel visits Zechariah, Elizabeth, Simeon, Anna, Miriam, Joseph, and shepherds. I almost think it may be true that the only time you get angelic visitations is when you're in the position of those folks, which, where were all those people in Luke 1 and 2? All down and to the right. Two years ago, I was outside the bedroom of my friend David Sachs. David was dying of stage four cancer. He was exactly my age. His oldest son was eight years old and had his chess set and wanted his dad to play chess with him. David was beyond playing chess. He was hanging on to life and a few days later he would die. And I looked at Noah, David's son, and I, my heart burst with a kind of sorrow and anger toward God and I said, God, David will never again play chess with this boy. And my son is 16 years old. He'll be fine without me. Why, did you, why have you taken my, my uh, friend and not me? And I got into a conversation with David's father-in-law about what was happening. This man said to me, sort of out of the blue, he said, I've only had two angelic visitations in my life. <laughs> I said, really? I mean, that's... It's really low. I mean, <laughs> two angelic. Tell me. He said, when I was 12 years old, my father was a traveling salesman. He flew in little planes all over the Midwest for his territory. One winter night, 
We didn't hear about his plane ever landing. It took four days for them to find the plane, crashed in a field. My father died when I was 12. He said, two months later, I was playing in my backyard and two men approached. And they said, we are here to tell you, your father is safe. He's loved. He sees you, he knows you, and you are loved. And then they disappeared. I thought, that's why I've never had an angelic visitation. Because <laughs> my dad is still alive. The angels visit you when you are down and to the right. And they speak to you. They speak hope to you. And this is the true story. Now, let me apply this. I have a lovely talking uh, you know, plan here that says, end this section by 19 minutes left. I have 10 minutes left, so I'm going to speak <laughs> at double speed for the next 10 minutes. <laughs> what we have to ask then is what in our world represents empire? That is, where are there premature closures to the contradictions of the human story? that we need to counter with a better, truer story that does not avoid the contradiction but engages redemptively with it. <laughs> uh, you may regret saying that. <laughs> what are the systems that enforce the axis of violence, that keep it locked in static position rather than unlocking the dynamism of it that would cause those locked in poverty to rise up and ask, why are we oppressed? And for that matter, cause those who are failing to maintain the control to ask, is there a better way? Is there flourishing for all? What are the systems that keep that locked in place? I want to try to apply this briefly to three things. Oh, Lord Edwards, why did I decide to do this? Tom Lynn is thinking the same thing. Uh, I want to apply this briefly. I just want to gesture and tell you here are the three things we got to think about. we got to think about technology, we have to think about sexuality, and we have to think about the presidency of the United States. Okay, so technology, sexuality, and presidency. <laughs> I no longer have to raise money so I can do this kind of thing. Where are people seeking authority without vulnerability in our world? What is the empire that proclaims there's been a resolution to that conflict and we can actually have control and that conceals violence? Number one, technology, I want to submit to you, is the empire of our time. I know we can talk about the United States as an imperial power. I know we can talk about competing would-be imperial powers, and I, I grant there's some truth to that. But absolutely the thing that our age looks to to insulate us from the vulnerability of being human is technology. And you can't understand anything else, especially sexuality, by the way, let alone anything else that's happening in our world, if you don't understand the power of this promise, which tells us that if we orient our lives around these ways we've discovered to harness the, the natural reality that fills us and that we were meant to discover, I believe, if we can harness those in the right ways, we'll be omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent. We'll be like God, and if we can really get this thing going, and I'm sure there are some scientists working on this right now, we will not have to die. And the technological frame, the technological mindset, the technological paradigm is the empire of our time. 
And those who command it are more powerful than presidents. They are more powerful than musicians. We know their names, we see their faces, and we all carry their little devices around with us. Sorry, that hurt. Because that little thing gives me a sensation of power that Caesar Augustus would have, he would have killed to have. And suddenly I can be anywhere. I can know anything I want, at least, I think. I can see things I was never meant to see. I can communicate things I would never dare say in person. And I have, I seem to have, authority without vulnerability. So much more to say about that, but just Sexuality. The most extraordinary act of authority and vulnerability you may ever have the opportunity to participate in is to conceive and raise a child. And that is what sexuality is. Now, because of technology, we've forgotten this. Because one of the things we figured out how to do was to highly reliably contracept sexual encounter. But that was not the case for most of human history. For most of human history, people knew the sexual encounter between a man and a woman is fraught with vulnerability. And it is also the act of greatest authority, authoring into the world a new life for which you then become responsible and who then has claims on you you couldn't have imagined. So the sexual act that conceives children is meant to be held within a context that can hold that authority and vulnerability together. And that is a covenant between a man and a woman that is embedded and held in a covenant community, all of which declares dependence on God, who's the only one who can hold our authority and vulnerability together. And nothing less than that kind of context is sufficient to provide the necessary authority and hold the necessary vulnerability of marriage and sexuality and parenting. But there's another side to this reality of sexuality, which is that with the potential authority and all the vulnerability that comes with it, of sexual expression, of conception, of marriage, of parenting, comes the possibility, realized oh so often in human stories, that one or more of these may not happen. And this is the case for Zechariah and Elizabeth. It's the case for uh, Anna, the widow, for uh, most of her life, which is that there is a vulnerability of not marrying, a vulnerability of not being able to express what you sexually yearn for, and a vulnerability, even if you were to be married and be sexually expressing, of never conceiving. The brilliance of the church as founded by Jesus is that it provides a community strong enough and deep enough both to hold the vulnerability of the married and those who parent children and the families that raise them, and to hold the vulnerability of the unmarried and those who never become parents. Because the head of this community is one who was never married and yet who we acclaim as the bridegroom. And the head of this community was one who was never sexually united with another person physically and yet whom Isaiah 53 says in the midst of accounting his dereliction says he shall see his offspring. He is our Lord who fully knows the authority of those who are married and give themselves in marriage and the authority and vulnerability of those who do not marry and do not give themselves in marriage and yet are gathered into God's great family and great wedding. 
Greco-Roman pagan marriage, well, <laughs> marriage was the least of it, Greco-Roman pagan sexuality entirely operated on the axis of idolatry, injustice, and exploitation. In fact, it wasn't even about, I mean, these days we're very concerned about, you know, which gender couples with which. That was not an issue in Rome. It was all about who had power over whom in the sexual encounter. And if it was a man with a man, that was fine as long as the power relations were kept in place. Man with a woman, man with an unmarried woman, no problem, as long as it reinscribes the system of power. And the Christian story came into that system and elevated the dignity of the marital sexual act and the man and the woman engaged in it in such a way that it undermined that Greco-Roman vision. What is our contemporary hookup culture if not authority without vulnerability? Now available <laughs> to both sexes. The presidency. Arthur Schlesinger in 1973 wrote a book called The Imperial Presidency. And he traced the way that our institutions that were meant to actually hold the presidency in a kind of check, you know, the checks and balances we all learn about, had begun to break down. Well, wow, 1973, he had a, an idea that has turned out to be quite true. And just as the people of Praeni thought Augustus was pretty good, both parties have their imperial president they hearken back to and say, weren't those days great, Kennedy and Reagan? Now, you have to squint a little bit and ignore a lot, but in some ways, each of them, in pretty profound ways, led with a kind of imperial power that brought good things for their constituencies and to some extent for the country. But what happens is it never stays that good. <laughs> the idol never stays that good. Systems of empire always break down. So we get from, well, I'm not going to get too specific here, uh, partly because of time and fear. Uh, but. Uh, <laughs> Let's just say that imperial dynasties on both parties have broken down. Let the reader understand. And let's just say that in 2016, we ended up with two major party candidates. And by the way, I have never voted for a winning presidential candidate any time I voted. So I didn't vote for the one who won this year. I've never voted for one who won. I've written in a lot. Uh, but uh, I've, never, I've never voted for a winning candidate, so if your candidate didn't win, I'm with you. But in 2016, both major party candidates were the very embodiment of authority without vulnerability. In totally different ways, one highly approved by the meritocratic elite, another approved by people who are just looking for a strong man who will be their savior, but both, both embodied that up to the left corner, and it destroyed one in, in her possibility of being elected, and it will destroy the other, and we just better pray it doesn't take us down as well, because it never lasts. Idols and empires are always best at the beginning. You want to get in early because it gets pretty dodgy later on. The story of the true God is best at the end. Idols and empires are a great disappointment. But at the wedding feast of the Lamb, we will say to the true bridegroom what the steward said to the bridegroom in John 2. Everyone, every idol, brings out the best wine at the beginning and then serves the cheap stuff at the end. But you have saved the best wine for last. <laughs> Hallelujah. Glory to you, God. That this God, when his story is unveiled and we worship a lamb who was slain from the foundations of the world, we will say you are better than we ever imagined, and no one will ever say that about any device, about any substitute for the human uh, covenant family, and certainly not for any president. 
Do you remember how excited you were to get on Facebook the first time? How empowering that felt? Oh my gosh. And now you're like, get me off. All right. Two last things. <laughs> it is, <laughs> it could be five more minutes. Oh. All right, I, I feel like I need to, I can't, I can't skip this, it's very important. You can't be nostalgic. This is why you can't be nostalgic. This is why, I'm, I'm very conservative in many ways, but the conservative impulse to nostalgia is wrong because it's basically saying, remember the good old days of when idolatry was young? Remember when, oh man, when Egypt actually made military treaties with us? Uh, they broke all those treaties and now we're prisoners of Assyria. But yeah, remember, remember when the Republican Party actually pretended to pay attention to evangelical Christians? Weren't those beautiful days? I like what Native American activist Mark Charles says. This phrase, racial reconciliation. Reconciliation. Re re okay, that implies there was a time of profound racial harmony that we just need to get back to. He's like, tell me from the Native people again when that moment was. Because what we need is not nostalgia, not just rewind. And even, even the characters in Luke, I don't know if they quite get it, because they know a Messiah has come. They say he will deliver us from our, en our enemies. He's going to cast down the proud. He's going to lift up the, mighty, the, the lowly. And yes, he will. But it's going to look so different from what you imagine. He's not another emperor. He's not a replacement for Augustus. He's something different. He's something new. And he brings into the world a people who now have a threefold vocation that corresponds to the three broken corners of the chart. And this is not in my book because I didn't figure it out until a month ago or two. <laughs> but I realized, oh my gosh, the three offices of leadership in Israel that Jesus fully fulfills answer the three broken corners of our broken world. Prophet, priest, and king. We need prophets. Prophets are those who speak to people in the upper left. And I learned in seminary, prophets don't just foretell, they forthtell. So they both name the attempt for control, and they foretell, this is not going to keep working, so you ought to consider changing. Prophets speak truth to those who seek control. But then there's the priest. The priest meets those down and to the right. Because all of us before God, none of us have the authority to approach God on our own. We all know we're incapable of doing that. We are vulnerable before God, but the priest offers your sacrifice for you, lifts you up so you can stand in the presence even of God with the authority you were made for as an image bearer. And I think this is metaphorical for all the ways we meet people in their vulnerability and elevate their authority, not our authority, but their authority, so that they have the dignity of image bearers of God. And then you need what in the Bible we'll call, I realize it's a gender-specific term, but in, even in the Old Testament, women play all these roles, by the way. You need a king who calls people out of safety and you see life lived the way it's meant to be with full authority and full vulnerability, and you say, that's what I want. This is what your students need. 
They are all most excellent Theophilus. And they need to hear this story. And they need you to be their prophet, priest, and king so they can be prophet, priest, and king in the world. I need a prophet. I need a prophet in my sexuality. I need someone to speak truth to me, me, Andy, about my brokenness, about my complicity, about my, what I could put at risk. Someone to tell me my sexuality is communal, not private. That my body is not my own, but belongs to Christ. That my fantasies of sexual omnipresence and omniscience, that's what porn is. And omnipotence, that's what adultery is. I can do anything I want with anyone I want. Are actually idols that will destroy my actual potence. <laughs> my capacity to love my wife and every other woman and man I need. I need a prophet in my use of technology. I need someone to speak truth to me about how I tend to misuse this stuff, how dependent I become on it. Do you know, uh, for some friends of mine I just surveyed teenagers and asked them, what's your one number one complaint about your parents? And teenagers said their one, number one complaint about their parents is their parents spend too much time on their phones. And oh boy, do we need prophets in the coming presidency in this country. And then we will need priests because these patterns generate wounds. They wound people. They make people vulnerable. The hookup culture makes everybody, women and men, more vulnerable, unbelievably vulnerable. And we have all these legal systems to try to address this. We know they are not addressing it. Be the priest to those people. I need a priest in my use of technology. This presidency will create vulnerabilities we've never imagined, not just for specific categories of people, but for everyone, including those who trusted in this emperor to act on their behalf. And they're going to need a priest, someone who, you know, the worst thing you can have when you need a priest is to get a prophet, by the way. <laughs> so be a prophet at the right time, but be a priest at the right time. And I need a king. I need people around me who live with authority and vulnerability. My friend Will, I'm changing names here just for their privacy, who lives and leads with incredible courage and insight precisely because he is vulnerable as a gay man, but a gay man who is faithful to scripture and the Orthodox Christian witness, and my friend Will is a king who lives with incredible authority and vulnerability and has changed my life. My friend Shirley, who lived more than 50 years of life as a single woman in New York while her Christian friends told her, well, the reason you're not getting married is nobody's gonna marry you unless you have sex with them. And she led faithfully, started companies, led churches, has lived an unbelievably fruitful life. My friends David and Sarah, who just are my wife and my best friends, they live this incredibly full and risky life as parents of four children, and they invite us into their home and they share the whole mess with us with incredible honesty and depth. The ones who are kings in God's story are the vulnerable ones. And that means everybody can be a king who present their vulnerability to Christ, our great high priest, and find that he lifts them up, lifts us up to positions of great spiritual authority. So, last page. All, almost all, from Scripture. So at the time when the empire seems strongest, at the time when the empire seems to be tottering and failing, do not be afraid. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. If we have died with him, we also will live with him. Hmm. 
Salah. <laughs> if we endure, if we endure in our varsity, we also will reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Ha! Fight the good fight. Finish the race. Keep the faith. There is laid up for you, 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 the crown, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to all who have loved his appearing. And all God's people said, amen. amen.